Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast with me, Scott Challoner. The podcast, just like the Leaders' Council itself, is all about recognising and celebrating the people who keep this country running. We exist to give leaders a voice outside of their own organisation and to support them in the same way that they support their staff every single day of the week. If you are in a leadership position yourself and would like to have your voice heard on the national stage, please go to leaderscouncil.co.uk forward slash apply. Joining me on today's programme on a cloudy and cool autumn day here in the capital are both Ruth and Barry Scott. Ruth and Barry are co-directors at the Bothy Bistro, a well-established restaurant in Burghead, Mauritius, serving some of Scotland's best grilled seafood steaks and innovative salads and sides as well. Um, Ruth, Barry, very warm welcome to both of you today and thank you ever so much for joining us. Hello. Thank you for having us. It's a real pleasure welcoming the pair of you onto the airwaves with us. Um, normally, we dive straight into the subject of leadership at this point in the show and really bring that into focus. But considering that the COVID-19 pandemic has been the dominant story in the headlines throughout 2020, I feel it's appropriate that we approach the subject matter from that angle. Because it's been such a significant challenge for leaders within all walks of life. But with the hospitality sector especially stricken by the pandemic, to what extent has it affected things for you and your business? Uh, initially, we, we actually did wonder if the business would survive um, the, the restrictions that were getting put in place. Um, when when Boris Johnson announced that people should um, avoid restaurants, we, we immediately had more staff than we did have customers. Uh, we sort of struggled on for a couple of days and then we realised it was just time to close. Uh, at that point, we had 18 staff. We, we didn't know how long we were going to manage to keep paying their wages, obviously for no income. So we had to start considering what we were going to do instead. Uh, and basically at that point, we decided that we needed to um, move everything outside. Outside seemed the safest place to be. Um, we couldn't operate in our premises with distance between tables because the premises are so small. So um, we really weren't left with any option other than to, to move forward and, and look to work outside. And I understand as well that as you sort of adapted to deal with the challenges of the pandemic, you came up with quite an innovative idea of your own to sort of keep the business going during that time. Yeah, so we done a caravan park as well as the um, bistro. Um, caravan park is in a beautiful location of overlooking the Murray Park. Mm. So what we did was we, we basically took the um, Bothy team um, and, and fitted out two shipping containers into an outside kitchen, um, which gave them new premises outside that they could cater um, for people that wanted to be outside, eat outside, you know, in the sort of fresh air, beautiful scenery, but obviously safely. And um, what is your opinion on sort of how the government has handled the pandemic so far? Because there's been a great deal of criticism of some of the measures that they have put in place. But then on the flip side to that, there's also been a lot of things done to safeguard the future of business, such as the furlough job retention scheme and the bounce back loan term as well. So what are your views on leadership from that point of view? Yeah, I think, you know, it's easy talking about things in hindsight. Um, Initially, probably they had as much idea of what was happening as we did. You know, um, when when we were first told, or when people were first told not to or to avoid, or it was recommended that we avoid restaurants, um, obviously all the restaurants ended up with no customers. 
uh, at that point, there was no furlough scheme in place. There was no mention of furlough. So uh, there was those sort of really difficult day, days addressing, you know, how long reserves would cover the wages and, and what have you. Um, once furlough was announced and bounce back loans and things, obviously things got a little bit easier. Mm. Um, but, you know, the, the hospitality industry, we, we bring in fresh food, you know, ahead of time to, to put on the menus and what have you. So not getting any notice of what was about to happen, you know, you didn't have the opportunity to sort of use this, the um, produce you already had. Mm. You had not a lot of wastage. Um, the majority of people would have taken an extra food for the Mother's Day weekend, which was obviously the one at lockdown. Um, mm. We fortunately managed to, to open, out, open up um, outside and we cooked on open fires and we started to take away what we planned to serve in the in the bistro. Otherwise, all that food would have been wasted. So, you know, more notice is always going to help the industry. Uh, mm. The eat out to help out scheme was maybe a bit premature in hindsight. You know, everyone was being encouraged to eat out, and here we are a few weeks later, and the industry has, you know, significantly more restrictions, almost to the point where. It's unmanageable. I mean, a lot of the pubs and what have you up here have decided to close rather than go into beer gardens because October in the north in the north of Scotland isn't isn't ideal, you know, weather to be outside. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I can certainly understand where you're coming from from that point of view. And um, there's an important point to take away from what you just mentioned there in the sense that businesses, particularly within hospitality, have been sucked into this state of having to be reactive to everything. There is no long term to plan for anymore. There's no planning for months and planning for um, years ahead because... Changing guidelines and changing circumstances now dictate that you can only plan days and maybe weeks at best in advance. So business is having to strike a very delicate balance between having procedures in place ready for certain eventualities, but then also having to just pivot and react to every change that keeps being flung their way. Yeah, I mean, of course, you know, the, the more sort of freedom and flexibility you have, the, the easier it becomes. You know, it's like when we when we opened up with two shipping containers and a caravan park, we didn't we didn't have planning permission for that. We just had to think on our feet and you know react. Um, obviously, now we've got that the sort of planning enforcement sort of looming over us. But you know, our priority at the time was to keep the business running, to keep people in jobs. Um, I think probably we just need to, you know, in future. I think if there was a pandemic in the future, that there needs to be certain things that immediately are brought in, like you know, reduced planning legislation. You know, um. there's plenty from this that, of course, governments and authorities do need to learn and take forward, and it has brutally exposed the fact that we were unprepared for something uh, like this for sure. And it actually um, is um, a huge irony because I'm sure it was the uh, the Global Health Index or one of those um, sources similar to that actually rated the UK in October 2019 as being the second best country in the world prepared for a lockdown behind only the USA. <laughs> and based on how this has panned out so far, I think that has been completely flipped on its head. Thinking about the um, the future just for a second, though, um, we know that we're going to have to persist with the new normal for quite some time yet. But just how long can you see 
this going on for i know we don't have a crystal ball but the fear of course is that even when there is a working vaccine god willing and fingers crossed there is one by the spring or whenever that it will still take some time for consumer confidence to return and for people to actually be sort of summon up the courage enough to go out again and spend money and be in venues with lots of people just because of the anxiety that this is going to have caused even when it is safe again to do so yeah, I mean, we've got the, we plan to open the bistro again um, on the 28th, which is just after the sort of current heightened restrictions are lifted. Um, that, that has more to do with the fact that the caravan park closes at the same time. Um, but also moving back into premises where we are going to have restrictions, you know, we already anticipate that we're probably going to lose money for the next four or five months over winter. Um, so we're already looking at how we then get opened up again outside as soon as the sort of better weather arrives um, to get the business sort of, you know, back in a more stable position. Uh, just now we do have reserves because, we, you know, we did well over the summer with our outside restaurant. Um, we definitely need another summer if we're still going to have restrictions in place. So, you know, we're in discussions with the local authority just now about how we um, get permission to open again next year, where we're going to open uh, might not necessarily be in the same place, but you know we can't we can't look to sustain all the staff over winter if we don't know that we can be open in the summer. Mm. And that's exactly it, isn't it? And that's another issue with not being able to plan ahead because of the sort of unpredictable nature of all of this and the uncertainty. And um, even though, of course, it is difficult to really see too far in the future, um, in an ideal world. Where is it that you want the business to be in a year's time just before we wrap things up? And what is it that you're really hoping to have achieved, both of you, by then? Well, it'd be nice if in a year's time, you know, COVID's passed, if we don't have any more restrictions, there's no more threats or lockdowns. Um, how feasible that is, is anyone's guess. I mean, we all thought sort of early summer that we were sort of seeing the end of it. Um, here we are, it almost seems to be getting worse again. In a year's time, yeah, it would be nice if, if it was all behind us. It probably won't be unless there's going to be a vaccine that, that comes out and everyone's happy, happy taking. Um, but yeah, you know, it's just nice to, to make sure that we can sustain the business, that, you know, if we need to move outside, we can move outside. Um, but yeah, it's, we, I mean, we set out all along just to make sure the business was secure and, and that's why we chose to go outside in the first place. But definitely in a pandemic that was not the best decision we made was to you know to move outside we had queues of over an hour people happily waiting for food because they were happy to be there mm. um you know if you'd said to someone that they were going to be happy standing in the queue pre-covid for an hour they'd you know probably laughed but um you know the covid restrictions changed people's attitudes changed people's perceptions people were happy being outside um People were happy to get out initially because they'd sort of been locked down in their own homes for so long. Um, you know, it's hard without knowing what restrictions are going to be in place where we want to be. But mm. it'd be nice if it was. It'd be nice if it was all in the past. It is certainly wonderful that you sort of made that possible people queuing up for food outside early on in the pandemic through the innovation and the creativity that you have within the business. And we've seen so much of that during this period of time that's helped business get through this far. And I'm certain that we're going to be seeing much more of it over the uh, the coming months as we try and negotiate this difficult winter. And that is one of the few positives to come out of this um, quite difficult and sensitive time for everyone. The innovation, the creativity, that entrepreneurial spirit, let's say. 
and it's bringing some positivity that I think we all need a bit of a dose of at the moment as we try and get through this. And in fact, just given how many variables there still are in the way that this could go, I actually think both of you, it would be incredibly invaluable and also really interesting from a listener's point of view if we could catch up and have you both back on the show with us at some point in this next 12 months, just to see exactly what has changed in the time between our conversations. I think I know I've um, not participated much in this, but I think it's important to say that we've been extremely fortunate to be able to have the opportunity to take our restaurant and put it outside. Whereas we know that that this has been much harder for, for lots of other people. It certainly isn't a one-size-fits-all approach that is possible for everyone. So everybody is having to get around certain restrictions exactly right and try and do certain things. It isn't always easy to innovate. It is quite difficult. And this is where, of course, business and communities do have to come together. And hopefully Uh that collaboration is something that we can certainly see going forward into the, uh, the future. Um, I have to say, both of you, it's been such a pleasure having you join us on the uh, the program today. And it's it's been really, really interesting from my point of view, genuinely. And um, also, until we do hopefully get to speak again in the future, um, I do hope both of you stay safe and take care with everything that is still going on, because we're certainly not out of the woods with this one yet. But let us keep our fingers crossed that we won't be stuck in this rut for too much longer. Likewise, Scott. Thanks very much. Yes, thank you. I'd also like to reiterate that last message to every single one of the listeners tuning into the programme today. Please do continue to be sensible with the lifting of restrictions. Look after yourselves and others because it does make such a difference in saving lives. It was a pleasure to welcome Ruth and Barry Scott onto today's programme. And coming up next on the show today, we'll be joined by Matthew O'Neill for his exclusive interview with former Education Secretary and Incumbent Leaders Council Chairman Lord Blunkett. That will be coming up next. Lord Blunkett, welcome. Thank you very much. It's very good to be with you. Um, Well, of course, uh, nothing is being said uh, at the moment other than COVID-19, which uh, we must touch on. Um, What would your message be to small businesses who are trying to keep going? Well, I think the last ones standing will be the ones that thrive when we get back to some sort of normality. So it's have confidence and courage. Obviously, take advantage as far as you can of the government help. I think that Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor, has gone about as far as you could have expected mm-hmm. in the circumstances. There are obviously small businesses that fall between the cracks. Those who uh, don't have um, defined premises, can't benefit from the business rate waiver, uh, have not really been able to demonstrate that they can uh, adhere to the PAYE for furloughing staff and, of course, whether they can receive the the grant, 10000 or 25000 all, all of those who can uh, are obviously able at least to benefit from that for the time being and look to the future. But I think the second thing to say, and they don't need me to tell them this as a politician who, who did once do a business studies qualification, which is that it will be a different world and being able mm. to think about how that world will look in a year's time and be creative about it and learn from not just what's happening to you at this moment in time, but to others around you and the sector that you're working in, that will be really important. Do you feel that the long-term effects of uh, the COVID-19 outbreak 
uh, will in some ways be positive uh, for a British industry? Well, only in the sense that people are having to be creative. They're having to adjust and innovate. Therefore, they're thinking about more productive, if you like, greater productivity ways of delivering the same service or delivering the same products. And in that sense, I think we'll have temporarily at least very much higher unemployment than we've become used to, but we'll probably have a burst of productivity, Mm -hmm. which will help with the recovery, whether it will help with the inequity of the way in which our economy is imbalanced, both between services and productivity and and, uh, production of goods and services, I'm not sure. What we will need to try and do is to ensure that the geographic imbalance that exists is, as far as humanly possible, is dealt with by both Uh, the entrepreneurship and innovation from the bottom up and targeted government help, which will still be needed. And we are now in the throes of the kind of borrowing that we saw back in 2008 to save the banking and economic system. We're we're having to do that to save the whole of our productive business and Mm -hmm. commerce. And I think that will have to be sustained for some time. Do you feel that people will take a second look at global supply chains in the wake of this outbreak? I think there's going to be much more creative ways of using local supply and linking up inside sectors much more effectively. And I hope that the Leaders' Council will be able to play a part in that in the sense that people who Mm. have something in common, a synergy in terms of what they're delivering, whether it's a service or whether it's manufacturing or whatever, uh, will be able to see that there's a, a, a good outcome from n- knowing the sector better, linking with people, not just geographically locally, but those in this country who may not have been on the radar in terms of what they produced for the supply chain. And, of course, um, ensuring, because there's quite a lot of fraud going on as we speak with um, people getting into cyber attacks, that they'll also take account of going into the the cybersecurity side effectively as well. The more we are online, the more people who are working from home, the more vulnerable those businesses and their supply chain become. And that's something to think about as well. How important is strong leadership at the moment? Well, I actually think that it's brought to the fore leadership in a whole range of areas from Obviously, government itself, and there's been ups and downs with the Prime Minister's uh, severe illness, but all the way through the public and private sector, people have, to use the jargon, stepped up. And they've shown uh, local, regional, national level the kind of leadership that Britain historically was very good at. Regrettably, we've not seen the same on the international scene for Mm. all kinds of reasons, Uh, but maybe we will in future. So I think out of this will come experience of people who have seen an opportunity to do good as well as seen an opportunity to provide a good uh, service or goods, uh, including, for instance, shortages uh, for the health and social care Uh, system, um, the food chain and the like, Uh, but also I think in terms of seeing the the synergy between the private and the voluntary sector and using people's uh, 
commitment to each other in a very positive way. I, I'm not sentimental about this. Things will revert. Mm-hmm. But actually, I think there's a, a kind of moment of moral judgment of people feeling that they've got a role to play outside the immediate survival that they're engaged in. And if we can hang on to a little bit of that social responsibility, that will be a very positive outcome. Absolutely. Now, what's your broad view of how the government is responding to this? Are you broadly supportive of their measures? Well, it may surprise people to hear that that I have been very supportive. Of course, there's been legitimate criticisms about the speed of response on protective equipment and on issues relating to testing. But my own view is very similar to the challenge that was made to the Prime Minister of Italy when people said, why didn't you close Italy down faster? And he said, a fortnight before we did it, I would have been considered to be a madman and nobody would have agreed to do it Mm. if I'd tried to move too quickly. And I I think that's something that we need to reflect on here in the UK. We we may have seen the signals elsewhere uh, across the world and taken them more seriously at the time. Hindsight is a wonderful thing, but as someone who's uh, had his life in uh, the opposite uh, political party to the, the present government, I think that with some hiccups and mistakes, they've not done a bad job in what has been incredibly difficult circumstances. And you're absolutely right. In a, in a liberal uh, democracy that we live in, it's, it's very difficult for people to swallow orders given to them from government. Um, well, the, the UK and, um, and the US, and to some extent uh, the Scandinavian countries, have a very different interest, uh, history and, and therefore interest in maintaining the freedom to decide and the persuasion and consent mm. that's required. Uh, those countries that have experienced one way or another totalitarianism over the last century have a slightly different way of coming at this. Mm. I don't want to exaggerate it, but I think that that's why getting the balance right of getting people to go along with what you want them to do in their interests as well as the nation as a whole is a sensible proportional balance. And I think we now need to adjust to the coming out of the crisis gradually, uh, readjusting to recovery uh, in the same way. Now, something you've mentioned recently on this balance is uh, the police overreach and the enforcement of the COVID-19 uh, structures that have been put in place. What have they done right, and where have they gone too far? Well, I think that they were interpreting what was not necessarily as clear yeah. advice as it might have been for all kinds of reasons, because people were feeling their way. I think what's come out of it has been uh, a demonstration by local police services in some parts of the country that they could get people to do what was needed without the heavy hand of drones overhead mm. or people being told that they you know, shouldn't be walking in the street because this was all about self-isolation, not incarceration. It was about getting people not to pass the infection on to each other and therefore to provide distance rather than to make our lives a misery. Those police services that adopted that policing by consent and chipping people along did really well. Those who went over the top, I think, soon got a very substantial pushback. And one of the strengths of our democracy is that you could have that debate. People could say, 
I'm terribly sorry. We, we think the police force in our area has gone over the top, and that in itself is a constraint and uh, a readjustment. That, that's another strength of um, living in a country where you can have opinions and express them without actually being thought to be a fool. Now, of course, uh, the government has faced criticism uh, that they were slow to react, uh, and Boris Johnson wasn't present at the early COVID-19 COBRA meetings. Now, uh, Number 10 has claimed that this is normal practice. Uh, the health secretary often chairs COBRA meetings uh, related to health. Uh, does this tally with your experience as a secretary of state, or would you have expected the PM uh, to be more hands-on during the initial stages? I think different prime ministers do have a very different style. And Boris's style, which I think will now be considerably adjusted, was very swashbuckling. In some senses, delegating is a good thing, uh, as every leader of every business or public service knows. Those who try to pull too much into themselves end up with a massive bottleneck, a great uh, failure of trust, and the inability of people to show what they're worth and to, to demonstrate their capability. So I, I, I'd be very wary of jumping in and saying he was wrong to delegate the essential COBRA meetings. What I was surprised about was that he didn't um, chair the first couple because mm -hmm. my experience with Tony Blair for the eight years I was in cabinet was that Tony was a great delegator, but he would get a grip to begin with watch what the difficulties were, and then give people direction and confidence to be able to get on with it. So looking back, I think Boris himself probably thinks, God, I wish I'd spotted the signals from elsewhere in the world more rapidly, and I'd just been there. However, this also raises another issue. All of us in positions of leadership need good teams around us. Mm -hmm. I think after this is over, he will be assessing those who really did step up and those who demonstrated their inadequacy, I think we'll probably end up in a year's time with a much stronger cabinet than we have today. Well, absolutely. And of course, uh, we've seen a, a significant uh, drop in the visibility of uh, certain special advisors like Dominic Cummings uh, during this uh, entire period. So it'd be interesting to see how that pans out. Um, well, yeah. it's certainly readjusted the role of those behind the scenes with those who should be taking the decisions having received advice. Obviously, there's been a complete transformation in the profile of experts, if I might use that term, who'd previously been denigrated. Mm -hmm. Scientists, medics, people with behavioral science uh, understanding. My only criticism was, were we getting wide enough advice? Were we narrowing it too much to a couple of key centers in London? But that's because I've always been adverse to everything being London-centric. I think there's great expertise, wisdom, experience out in the sticks, and uh, we should use it. Uh, rightly so. Um, now, was part, pandemic planning part of your time as a minister, particularly perhaps uh, when you were Home Secretary? Well, it was, but it was on the back of risk arising out of counter-terrorism measures. Right. Uh, I was the Home Secretary for three months when the attack took place in September 2001 on the World Trade Center and beyond. But we did an enormous amount of uh, scenario planning, both desktop and, and real. On the back of that, it was very heavily orientated 
to future developing terrorism risk. I certainly got involved with talking about pandemics. I remember being at a seminar in Edinburgh where the university had done a lot of work itself on the issue of pandemics. And of course, we, we saw SARS and other things emerging. I, I think it would people criticised the government for not picking up the report from 2015, five years ago. I think that what happens is human nature kicks in. You deal with what you're immediately faced with. Mm. You you can you can sponsor reports. And this is true of business planning, of course, as well, and scenario planning for what business continuity will look like, recovery plans for business, what will happen if um, there's a cyber attack, what happens if there's an energy shutdown. Shut um, these kind of things you, you can look at. But you're immediately turning your eyes to what's in front of you. And had we picked up a bit more on the danger from Ebola and SARS and what have you in the past, then we might have said, what if something hits us in the developed nations that we don't have a vaccine for, mm -hmm. that we can't immediately whisk up uh, protective materials or equipment or, for that matter, medicines that help with recovery, all of which we now see are a danger. I think this will make an enormous difference to the planning for the, for the years ahead. I hope it will be widened so that we don't just look at what's happened because very rarely do you see something exactly repeat itself. Some of the circumstances will be, but others won't. So that's why I've put emphasis in what I talk about on looking at the other virus, the cyber attack uh, scenario, mm -hmm. which could be just as dangerous in a, uh, a world of just-in-time provision. One of the miracles of uh, the modern developed world, except for the very poor, has been the distribution of food. A lot of it on computerized, uh, technologically advanced systems. If that were to come down, we'd be in real trouble. So I think we need to think those sort of scenarios as well. So have a full plan across uh, both sectors, uh, biological warfare, pandemics, and uh, cyber warfare. Yes, and to do so on different levels. I think, again, thinking of thinking global but acting local, we mm. need a lot more to think about what would happen if something took shape that actually broke down those national and global chains and how we would cope. And without, uh, obviously we've got enough fear and anxiety to last a lifetime without creating even more anxiety, we can think about those things for the future in a more rational way, I think. Now, aside from the physical uh, threat of the virus, one of the things that people are vastly worried about is the effect on uh, the economy, not just national economy, but also the world economy. Um, now, it, it has been said by certain parties, um, and uh, I'd like to garner your uh, thoughts on this. Is there a danger of the effects of the lockdown being even worse than those of the virus? Were it be to prolonged, I fear that that balance would tip the other way. It is about proportionality. It is about balance. It's the wisdom of Solomon, really, to, to get the moment right when you start to move and then to move quickly. There's no doubt whatsoever that we are stocking up 
not just on the economic and employment front, which will be devastating enough, but on the health and social well-being front, enormous challenges. And they will need careful handling because there's a lot of people whose lives, for a variety of reasons, are at risk in the future on a scale that we've been dealing with over the, the immediate handling of the pandemic, concentrating really hard on those affected by COVID-19, those sadly who have died or been seriously incapacitated, that will roll over into the economic, the social, the mental health and cultural well-being of the nation. And that will need all of us to pull together as well. Absolutely. Now, do you believe the government's doing enough for business? I think that the speed of reaction once the scale of the pandemic was clear was very good. I've praised Ricky Sunak for his action. Uh, remember, a chancellor who only just come into office was planning to deliver the budget in the middle of March and has had three, at least three equivalent budgets since. I think he's handled it very well, understandably worried now about what we're doing to our economy. The level of borrowing is sustainable because of low interest rates, but it reaches a point, of course, where it tips over so that you can't then do the kind of structural investment requirements that the government were laying out before and in the March budget. And those will have their consequences as well as a planned payback over many years. I think we've learned something over the last few months. We, we needed to take immediate action. We don't want another round of austerity equivalent from 2010 through to 2019. I don't think the nation, on the back of what's happened and the challenges we have, could take that. And therefore, we need a different plan, economic plan, over a much longer period, just as we did from the Second World War all the way through to 2002, when the final American loans were paid off. Now, of course, uh, one thing that's on everyone's lips, um, how much longer do you believe uh, that the lockdown can go on for? I believe that we need to be substantially back in action as an economy in June. This obviously is layered in terms of places where people would meet in large numbers, having to uh, adjust to the fact that it will be longer for them. And sadly, that will involve business closures. It's why the Chancellor extended the furlough scheme to the end of June. Mm -hmm. But unless we, we get things moving in June, I think we'll run into the summer where all kinds of services and industries will have a chain reaction effect. And what happens with one will then have a major impact on another. And then you get the skittle effect, where things get knocked down that you hadn't perceived were going to be affected. So I very much, if I were in government, and I always think of things in that context, what would I do if I were in government? I would be on the side from... The second week in May, on the side of the Hawks, in terms of saying we've got to start moving and we've got to do so with the collaboration and cooperation of the public who have got the message, who did behave, who 
responded magnificently. Let's try and get back. Perhaps, you know, doing things differently for a time, but substantially getting back to business as usual. Unless we do that, then those areas that can't and wouldn't expect to be back in action immediately get pushed further into the middle of the year in the autumn, and then they become unsustainable. Now, of course, um, one of the other major developments we've had recently are the changes in the uh, the Labour Party. So if we could just uh, speak on the Labour Party for uh, a while. Um, this might sound like uh, an obvious question, but uh, how does uh, Secure uh, differ from Mr Corbyn? Well, I'm biased because I believe the Labour Party um, has come out of four and a half years of a black hole of a nightmare mm. uh, where it neither represented a, a, a credible opposition nor a, an electable government and the combination was to let those who supported the Labour Party and needed some of its policies uh, let them down very badly. Sir Keir Starmer both is a highly intelligent uh, professional lawyer who as Director of Public Prosecutions led the service well uh, had to take difficult decisions at a time of austerity, understands the world beyond Labour members, but has been able to do business with those who originally supported Jeremy Corbyn mm-hmm. and was able to command support from them. His creation of a balanced shadow ministerial team has been very encouraging. Um, I supported Lisa Nandy, who he's made Shadow Foreign Secretary, because I thought she understood the north of England and uh, the the disaffected uh, former Labour voters. But I believe that Sakir has taken on board those who have something really sensible to offer. And I believe he will be both a, a great leader of the opposition more importantly, will then present himself as a credible alternative prime minister. And all governments need an alternative government at their shoulder. Mm. Uh, it was true of us from '97, and it took the Conservatives some time to recover and to get to that position, but they did, and the Labour Party will, and that's crucial for our democracy. All of us need to understand and appreciate that a living, breathing functioning democracy requires uh, a credible, confident, and uh, in many ways uh, supportable opposition, as well as a government that we clearly want to do well, because none of us want, as we didn't with the COVID crisis, none of us want the government to fail. We want to see our economy recover. We want our social well-being to be taken into account. We want to overcome deep-seated inequality and poverty, and we want to do it with enterprise and entrepreneurship and business playing their role, and that is about leadership nationally, locally, in the private and the public sector, people with ideas, with confidence, with the ability to pull teams around them, above all, to have some idea of what it is they want to achieve and a very good idea as to how to achieve it. Now, of course, one of the biggest problems Secure is facing will be tackling the party's anti-Semitism problem. Uh, There has been a recent internal report that has been quite damning. Uh, What's your response uh, to that report, and what does Secure need to do in response? 
Well, there are two reports. One which is being produced by the Quality and Human Rights Commission, uh, which he will, and has already indicated, will implement in full. The second was a leaked report put together by the supporters of Jeremy Corbyn, 800 pages of private uh, interchanges on social media, which he has, uh, Mr. Starmer, set up an investigation to identify uh, who did it, who leaked it, what the content was, does it have any salience and lessons for us, and where necessary action will be taken. So I hope that as he moved very quickly to reassure the Jewish community, so he will be able to take the necessary steps to back up that reassurance with the kind of actions that says that this was a blight on a historic great political party that all of us, all of us were ashamed of. We've been able to put that behind us and to move on to facing the future with confidence. What's the one king, uh, key thing that Sakir needs to do to restore Labour as an election-winning party? I think Sakir Starmer's major challenge is to convince sceptical voters that Labour has not only reverted to a party that they can support because they can see it acting, developing, presenting as a credible alternative government, mm -hmm. but also that the lessons have been learned from the fiasco from 2015 onwards. In other words, there have to be very clear signals of substantial change, not just the right words, not just reassurance that we're not uh, going back to some of the crazier uh, policies, but actually that we've understood why the electorate rejected those policies so substantially in December 2019. If people get that message, they'll understand that the Labour Party has changed, as it did in the 1980s and early 90s, to become the electable government with the greatest majority and historic majority, even greater than 1945, which I was privileged to be able to take advantage of in 1997 when I joined the Cabinet. Now, I know what your answer is going to be to this question, but uh, indulge me. Um, do you think Secure has what it takes to be PM? Yes, I do. I think he has the background, he has the experience, he has the professionalism, he has the forensic uh, mindset, and he has the confidence to have put a team around him which will ensure that it will work. And those elements are true of all leaders. Ideas, ability to build a team, to have confidence in that team, uh, and to be able to demonstrate leadership in practice, sometimes at the most difficult times. And, you know, the Leaders' Council, those sharing their thoughts with uh, um, the kind of thing that we're doing now uh, with uh, a podcast, but also joining us in linking up in that network of people who can support and help each other and learn from mm -hmm. each other, that is what needs to be done in politics as it needs to be done in business. Thank well, you very much indeed, Matthew. Well, really thank you for coming on the, uh, the program. It's been a, an absolute pleasure, and I look forward to speaking with you again.
Thank you very much, and good luck to all those listening in what has been a nightmare scenario. Good luck for the future. Have courage, have confidence, and yes, listen to those who know more about business than I ever will. Thank you, Lord Plunkett. Thank you. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.